the book of Romans, chapter 1. Let me begin reading for us in verse 1, and I will read again this introduction. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we begin looking at four truths concerning the gospel. Four truths taught here in these opening verses of this letter. The first truth we saw is that the gospel is good news. Uh, It is news. It is a message that has been spoken. It can be received. It can be understood. And it is good news. It is the best news of all. The gospel is the news of how man can be reconciled to God and be with Him forever in heaven Because of Jesus Christ. The second truth that we saw is that the gospel is God's. That is, that it is about God, absolutely, but mainly that it is from God. That this message in the book of Romans is not a a cleverly constructed religious message that, that the apostles made up, but rather it is a message from God Himself. And therefore it's of eternal value and worthy of our full attention. In our devotion. Well, tonight I want to draw our attention to the other two truths that we see taught here, uh, particularly in verse 2 and beginning of verse 3 concerning the gospel. And so here's the third truth I want to point your attention to namely, that the gospel is not new. The gospel is not new to us, but also the gospel was not new when Paul and the apostles began preaching it in the first century. Rather, God had promised this gospel, foretold this gospel in the past through his prophets. Look at verse 2 with me. End of verse 1 says that Paul was set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 2, which, speaking of the gospel, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so you see, Paul is not changing his theme in verse 2, from what it was in verse 1. In verse 1, among other things, his primary thrust, I think, was his desire to make clear that his gospel was a gospel from God. And now in verse 2, he is giving further evidence for the divine origin of his message. And he does this by pointing to the prophets of the Old Testament and saying, see what I'm about to share with you in this book of Romans? was shared before by the prophets. The gospel that I preach is the gospel of Isaiah, the gospel of Jeremiah, the gospel of Ezekiel, the gospel of 
Moses and Elijah and David and Abraham. Understand that Paul's message about a Messiah dying and rising again for the forgiveness of sins, that seemed very, very strange to the first century folks. I mean, we, we, are, we are living off of 2,000 years of Christian history. For most of us, the gospel doesn't seem strange anymore. So imagine that you've never heard anything like the gospel before, and you hear it for the first time. It was so different. Even to many of the Jews who had the Old Testament scriptures, Paul's message sounded really questionable. Really, Paul? The great king who's going to come and save his people comes and gets crucified like a common thief. So in verse 2, Paul wants to reaffirm my message is the divinely originated message that we find in the Old Testament. He reaffirms that his gospel is in perfect accord with what God had previously revealed. Do you remember when Paul was preaching to the Jews in the city of Berea? And we're told that the Jews in the city of Berea were more noble than those elsewhere because they, quote, received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed. Why did they believe Paul's message? Because they were examining their scriptures, which was the Old Testament, and as they looked at those Old Testament scriptures and they heard Paul preach, and they looked at those Old Testament scriptures and they heard Paul preach, they saw, these are the same. We find proof of what Paul was saying right here in the very Word of God. Thomas Schreiner says, Paul never conceived of his gospel as antithetical or contradictory to that of the Old Testament. Rather, he understood his gospel to fulfill the Old Testament in a way that surpassed the expectations of both Jews and Gentiles. Now, we need to be sure that we get this. And if you've studied the Scriptures for any time at all, you could probably give a testimony to this. That the New Testament and the Old Testament message are the same message. I've heard people say, you know, the God of the Old Testament is so different from the God of the New Testament. But that's not so at all. The message of both books and the God of both books is the same. When you look back at the Old Testament through New Testament lenses, you see here, there, and everywhere how every part of it pointed to Christ. How the gospel was being promised from the very beginning of the Old Testament, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, all the way through the end of Malachi. It's gospel. It's pointing to Christ. So Paul's message was nothing new, but was the fulfillment of something God had been promising for centuries and centuries. Now, why is it important that Paul's gospel find confirmation in the prophets of the Old Testament? Listen to this, because I, I can imagine some Jews coming to Paul and saying, Paul, your message seems so new, and then they would quote this verse to him. And they would say, Paul, remember Amos 3, 7? The Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servants, the prophets. Hear that, Paul? 
Amos 3.7 says that God does nothing. There is no big thing that God does. There is nothing He's going to do in His relationship with humanity that He's not going to reveal first to the prophets. So Paul, if your message is about this thing that God has done, Paul, you say it's the biggest thing God has ever done, the most important thing God has ever done, you'd better show it to us in the prophets. And so Paul was asserting here, my message, my gospel, is the message that was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, there is a valuable lesson for us here at Mount Hermon. And one of those is this, that we as Christians would do well to be wary of supposed new teachings. Paul does not not say, um, my message is brand new, but believe it anyway. No, he goes to great lengths to show that his message is actually a very old message, a message rooted in the Scriptures. In fact, he teaches us to be wary of new doctrines, new teachings that suddenly spring forward. As Matthew Henry says, Paul went out of his way to show that his was no novel upstart doctrine, but that its substance could be found promised in what had come before. So also the wisest saints of God the wisest saints of God have been those who have clung most steadfastly to the oldest of truths and who have only embraced new interpretations of Scripture after careful study to see that they are truly not new at all, but old and very clearly there in the Bible. We must not be like the ancient Athenians. Remember when Paul went and preached in Athens? And Luke includes in the book of Acts, he's talking about the Athenians that Paul was preaching to. And he said the Athenians would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Right? What was their conversations about? What was the news of the day? What was the new thing going on? Right? Today it's, you know, it's, it's who, who won American Idol and then tomorrow it's who won the, the Super Bowl and then the next day it's who's going to be this and, and it's, just, it's just something new all the time. What's the latest trend? What's the latest fad? Let's talk about something new. We need to recognize that novelty is often a friend to error. Now it is true, by the way, that before the throne of God in heaven, we're told that the creatures are singing a new song. But have you ever looked at what they're singing about? Very old truths. (laughs) Their new songs are new, but they're very much rooted in the Scriptures. Jeremiah called God's people to return to the old paths, the paths marked out by God's Word, because they were leaving those paths and turning to something more new. It's immaturity that is always looking for something new. It is maturity that is content with that which is sure. Paul warned the Galatians. He said, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And so it is wise to be a little suspicious of so-called new teachings and to take care that our doctrine is firmly rooted in the scriptures we have received. Now, we've already talked about the fact that the gospel is of God, which means it is of inestimable value. Yet Paul's mention of the prophets only heightens our awareness of the gospel's worth. Ambrosiaster, one of the early church fathers, noticed centuries ago that nobody uses great forerunners to announce some minor thing. 
Surely if Paul's message was promised by the prophets, it must not only be true, but, but very important. God's not going to announce something for century after century after century. He's not going to be announcing something's coming, something's coming. He's not going to raise up great prophets of God to proclaim these truths only for it to be something very small and unimportant. No. This message about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is worth more than our lives. And we ought to be willing to die for it if necessary. I am convinced that this can be a very helpful test to a person's, to aid a person in discerning whether or not he or she is really walking with God. Here's the test. How important is the gospel to you? How important is it? I would submit that those Christians who do not treasure the gospel, but constantly long to move on from it to other things, have truly never understood the gospel to begin with. We are in error when we allow other doctrines or other areas of study to take the place of preeminence in our lives that is the Gospels alone. Now, if you're getting tired of hearing your preacher talk about Christ crucified, either one, you just have a really bad preacher, because that ought to be interesting to you, but it's also possible that your heart is out of sync with what is truly glorious. Sin has a way of deadening our hearts to the most glorious things. Sin has a way of closing our eyes to the most wondrous sights. And so if the gospel, if the message of Christ crucified that you're hearing from that pulpit every Sunday morning and from here each Sunday night, that message of Christ crucified, if if it is not ringing sweetly in your ears, you need to ask yourself, why is it not ringing sweetly in my ears? And consider whether there might be some sin in your life that is taking you captive, leading you away from the most glorious of truths. For the Christian, this is the message of supreme value, the highest and the deepest of all truths. It does not get better than the gospel. Now, implicit in what Paul was teaching here in verse 2 is this doctrine of the faithfulness of God. Because Paul is claiming that the prophets, that God made a promise through his prophets. A promise that Paul is arguing has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In other words, the Old Testament is God promising. The New Testament, God is fulfilling that promise. And so for Paul, the gospel is all about the faithfulness of God. God keeping his word. Aren't you thankful that our God is a God who keeps his promises? Our God has given us numerous dear promises, many of them in the the book of Romans. But our very souls depend upon God being faithful to keep those promises. If our God is unfaithful, our hope is unfounded and our salvation is insecure. Yet thankfully the scriptures are abundantly clear on the faithfulness of God. For great is His steadfast love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Psalm 117.2 The faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Meaning, 
God's going to be faithful forever. Your response? Praise the Lord. <laughs> right? That should do something to you. Yes! He's going to be faithful to me. Now, notice the phrase, in the Holy Scriptures. Because that's a very important phrase. In the Holy Scriptures. This is important because it tells us that the message that God spoke through the prophets long ago has been faithfully passed down to us in the Holy Scriptures. Paul points his readers back to the Scriptures to see the message of the prophets. Understand, we live in a day when there are many who say, you can go to the Bible and you can read what's there, but that's not the message of the people who spoke. When you read the book of Isaiah, you're not really reading what Isaiah spoke. When you read the Gospel of Matthew, you're not reading what Matthew wrote. This book has gone through centuries after centuries of of scribes copying it and all kinds of things being done to it. You can't trust this book. There are people that would say things like that in Paul's day. Paul definitely does not side with them. He clearly believes that if you want to know the message of Isaiah, go to the book of Isaiah. If you want to hear the words that Elijah taught, go and read your Old Testament histories. If you want to learn about Moses, go and read the book of Exodus. He truly believed that the Old Testament was reliable. The prophets are not only the authors of the prophetic books. When you hear about the prophets, he's not just referring to Isaiah or Jeremiah. He's speaking about all those people who spoke God's word, from Genesis to Malachi, to Moses, David, Solomon. They would be included in the prophets when he mentions them in this verse. And he is arguing, Paul was saying, you can find their message in the Holy Scriptures. Now that word holy is important because the word scriptures simply means writings. And it can refer to any kind of writing. It can refer to to letters. It can refer to, to something Cicero or another pagan person wrote. And so holy writing shows that he is referring to sacred scripture. He calls them holy, set apart. Paul clearly believed the scriptures were divinely inspired and unique among all the writings of the world. And I trust you share his perspective. I hope you do. But Paul's main purpose here in verse 2 is not just to inform us about the, uh, the nature of the Old Testament Scriptures, but mainly about their content. He is asserting that the content of his gospel is a fulfillment of the content of the Old Testament gospel, the, the gospel promised in those pages. He is asserting that they contain the gospel promise that has now been fulfilled in Christ. That the promises of the Old Testament are anticipatory, that they point towards a future covenant, point towards a future kingdom, and now in Jesus Christ that new covenant has come, that new kingdom has come. Remember how Jesus, Jesus, when Jesus was walking down the road uh, to Emmaus with those two men, we're told that he beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In all the scriptures, from Genesis to Malachi, Jesus going down the Emmaus Road, he could point to a scripture and say, let me show you how that was pointing to me. Well, Paul did the same thing. We're told in the book of Acts, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures, all he had was the Old Testament, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. How did he do that? 
I mean, there's no Old Testament book that gives the name of the Messiah. There's no Old Testament book that says his name shall be Jesus. And yet Paul was able to show from the Old Testament by pointing to passages that foretold his crucifixion and the events of his life, he is the Messiah. Now there's a number of valuable lessons for us here. First, we should learn that the Old Testament Scriptures, no less than the New, are concerned with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not that the New Testament alone teaches the Gospel. Both books, Old and New Testaments, are concerned with the Gospel. Both reveal God and His holy character. Both reveal the sinfulness of men. Both reveal a Savior. The Old Testament is about Jesus. Are we clear on that? Are we good? The Old Testament is about Jesus. Don't read your Old Testament any other way. If we study an Old Testament passage and yet fail to see how its message is connected with the person and work of Christ, we have not succeeded in discovering the primary meaning of that passage. Now, a second lesson here is this, that the Bible, though made up of two Testaments, Old and New Testament, is still a unified whole. There's not a different God in the Old Testament and a different God in the New Testament. There's not a different gospel in the Old Testament, different gospel in the New Testament. There's not a different Savior being spoken of in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. These are two unified Testaments with one message. The more we study Scripture, the more we should see how each part of it is in perfect harmony with every other part. Now, a third lesson, which logically flows from that one, is that we should never read the New Testament in a way that contradicts the Old Testament, or vice versa. You should never read the Old Testament in a way that contradicts the New Testament. Throughout the book of Romans, this this is very important, church, because throughout the book of Romans, Paul is going to quote the Old Testament. Throughout the book of Romans, Paul is going to point us back to the Old Testament in order to to make his case. He's going to do so to show us that the gospel of Jesus Christ is in perfect accord with the Old Testament. And you will not find one example of any passage quoted by Paul, nor any passage in the Old Testament as a whole, that he believes to be out of step or contradictory to the gospel of Jesus If the Bible is one unified book with a unified message, then it is reliable. By the way, our God hates disunity, doesn't he? It is not like our God to give us a disorderly book that contradicts itself. It's against his very character. And so we can be sure that if one passage of Scripture seems to contradict another passage of Scripture, the problem's with us, not with the Scriptures. Paul had confidence in the Word of God and he staked his life upon it. Are you willing to do the same? Are you staking your eternal security, your eternal salvation upon the Word of God? Well, our final point is this. The gospel is the good news about God's Son. You see, we've been talking about the gospel all day. We've been talking about it as good news, talking about it as the gospel of God, talking about how it was promised to the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. But only now, at the beginning of verse 3, does Paul begin to give us some of the content of the gospel. What is it? 
What is this message that saves? And how do we discern the true glorious gospel from a counterfeit? Well, first and foremost is this. The true gospel is a message about the Son of God. The gospel promised through the Old Testament prophets, the gospel proclaimed by Paul and the apostles, has Jesus Christ at its center. In Romans 15, 19, Paul calls it the gospel of Christ. The great question which the gospel answers is how sinful human beings can have peace with a holy God. And the God... Think about that with me. Holy God, sinful human beings... How can we be united? How can we be made one? How can we have a peaceful relationship? What is the answer that the gospel brings? Not a strategy, not a thing, but a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 Therefore we have not preached the gospel until we've preached Christ. And we have not believed the gospel until we've believed Christ. John Stott wrote this. He said, The person and work of Christ are the rock upon which the Christian religion is built. It is He, if He is not who He said He was, and if He did not do what He said He had come to do, the foundation is undermined and the whole superstructure will collapse. Take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. There is practically nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity. Everything else is circumference. Well, who is this Jesus that lies at the heart of the gospel? He is the Son of God. You see that in verse 3? Romans 1, verse 3, concerning His, that's God's, Son. The gospel concerns the Son. The gospel is about the Son. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, that Jesus is the Son of God is seen clearly in the Gospels, and it was one of the most important aspects of the message that the apostles preached. And the Christian Gospel must include this, or it is incomplete. Long ago, Job had mourned in the book of Job that there was no arbiter between man and God, no no mediator who could come between man and God and bring the two together. Well, Jesus is the Son of God, God and man, who can stand in that gap and bring the two together. This is the good news of the gospel, that the mystery that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, but fully revealed in the New. God has a Son! I mean, we, we, we think that's old news, right? That's, of course He has a Son. They didn't know that, Right? None of the Jews in that day was walking around saying, here comes a Messiah and He's going to be the Son of God. That was a mystery foretold in the Old Testament, but only when it had come were they able to look back and say, oh, there it was! It was right here in the pages all along. We weren't expecting this. What God did was bigger and better than what they imagined. Who was going to reconcile them to God? Who was the great king that was going to come? Sure, he'd be a descendant of David, right? Along that lineage of David and Solomon. But suddenly God does something even bigger. Not only is he a descendant of David and Solomon, he's the son of God. He's God himself. That's why he is able to do what no human being could do. 
that Jesus bears this all-important title, God's Son, points us to several weighty truths. And one of these is that Christ is one with His Father. Human fathers and sons may often be very different in their appearance, in their mannerisms, in their personalities, in their interests. Fathers and sons are not exactly alike. Fathers and sons, human fathers and sons, can be very different. But this is true. No human father has ever fathered a kangaroo. True? This principle will stand the test of time. Human parents have human children. The nature that human parents have, i.e. human nature, is passed to their children. And their children have human nature. Well, similarly, though Jesus and His Father are distinct persons of the Godhead, they are united as one by their divine nature. God the Father has a divine nature. His begotten Son has His God nature. All that marks the Father as being divine also marks the Son. And this is true because Jesus is the image of the Father, eternally proceeding forth from the Father. An image has nothing in and of itself that does not originate in that which produces it. When you walk away from that mirror, your image is not still on the mirror, is it? The only time that image is there is when you are there projecting that image forth. So also Jesus is the image of His Father. If the Father didn't exist, there'd be no Jesus. But because Jesus is the image of the Father, everything that describes the Father and His character and His attributes and His nature is proceeded forth and is true of Christ. This is why when Jesus claims to be the Son of God, He is claiming to be God. Because everything that's true of God is true of God's Son. Moreover, because the Father and the Son are perfect, the unity that they have as Father and Son is higher than any ever known on this earth. Jesus and His Father are of one mind and one heart on every issue. There are no disagreements between Father and Son. This kind of unity is marked by a great peace that our relationships won't know until we get to heaven. Now finally, let's not miss this truth. that The fact that Jesus is called God's Son implies Jesus' eternal subjection to His Father. That is, that though the Father and the Son are one in nature and distinct in persons, the Son has forever subjected Himself to to His Father. That is, Jesus says, it is my eternal delight to submit myself to my Father and to do the will of my Father and to bring glory to my Father. And this is important because it reminds us that when Christ gave His life up for us on the cross, He was not acting independent of His Father. He was acting in obedience to His Father. The cross was the Father's idea. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And so when we hear the Gospel concerning God's Son, we are hearing the most precious message of all. God loves us. For it was the Gospel is all about God's Son. God's Son. The Son who does the will of His Father. The Father says, Son, go. 
die. For the glory of God and for our sakes, He does so. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We sang this this morning. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the Chosen One bring many sons to glory. The Gospel is the news of how God crucified His Son for us. So the Gospel is good news from God. It is news promised in the past through God's prophets, now recorded in the Old Testament. And it is news about His Son through whom we can have forgiveness of sins and peace with God. Here's the question. Do you believe the Gospel? And are you resting in the Lord Jesus Christ? I pray that you are. Amen.